It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A haunted house party. You believe in ghosts? <laughs> First simply disappears. And perhaps even a few murders. It is I, Ashley Lana, welcoming you back to yet another episode where I have every intention to try to make you as uncomfortable as I can by telling you a true crime story to make your hair stand up on end and then put you to sleep. (laughs) So we've already established that this episode was going to be about a cult and it's going to be a two-parter. We've never done one of those before, have we? We have not. So this will be our first two-part episode because there is so much information on what I'm about to tell you that I was not about to cut any of it out because it helps you understand everything. So on that note, since we're talking about cults, guess what? So in my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, we have an active cult since 2005 and this is absolutely bananas. So. This man may in fact be an Ashley Lana certified fruitcake, possibly. His name is John D. Rudder, and he is the leader of a new age spiritualist group called the College of Integrated Philosophy. Except legally, I looked into it, and his group isn't actually a college because the government of Alberta won't acknowledge the credibility. (laughs) Sorry, buddy, not happening. So I'll give you a quick briefing. John D. Rudder holds these seminars in an auditorium and during these seminars he sits under a soft light in the front of this room and stares. Just stares. For hours. Not minutes. Not minutes people. Hours. And then he will randomly have this spiritual awakening and then he'll talk for a bit and then he will find someone in the room and stare at them. People claim to have had their life changed by this guy. Like just by having his eyes look upon them, their lives have been changed. Like people weep. People have awakenings because of these guys' big blue eyes. He has like Elijah Wood eyes. If you don't know who that is, Google it. So let's add the cult factor of this man. He has admitted to having sexual relationships with his followers. Ding, 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 cult. which he calls, quote, the calling. And there was also a female follower who died suspiciously after she came forward explaining her story. So these aren't free seminars either, okay? So we're talking, it's about 60 bucks a session. I know because you're damn right I wanted to get in there to check this shit out. I needed to check this guy out, except because of COVID restrictions, he's doing online seminars and no, no. I I wanna be in the same room as him and I wanna experience these eyeballs. (laughs) It's awful, yes, but I obsess over cults, you guys. They all have the same formula and then they preach that they're not a destructive cult while being a destructive cult, yeah. So you know where this episode is going. We're talking about cults. Let's get brainwashed. Welcome to Lullaby. 
I myself favor cults over most forms of stories because I love watching the progression of the manipulation occur. <laughs> it's so bad. But just seeing and understanding the escalation of what's happening to me is fascinating. Disclaimer, not all cults are bad. I repeat, not all cults are bad. Because the term in sociology simply means a religious movement or group whose beliefs or practices are considered to be abnormal or bizarre. Organizations that I will discuss on lullaby cult episodes are in fact considered destructive groups that may have suffered unfortunate casualties because many cults have strict rules that prevent members from leaving and if one can manage to leave a negative organization can be faced with serious psychological, emotional, physiological, and social consequences. And the story that I'm doing tonight is going to explain how it's not as easy as just walking out the front door. Like this community I will describe were manipulated and conditioned for decades before this event happened. The more cult episodes we review, the more psychological understanding we will have for the paranoia deceptions, the segregation and the manipulation tactics of the cult leaders. And this episode is about a very popular cult, my favorite cult. It's the Jonestown and People's Temple massacre. And I try to stay away from the common cases, but this story has so many misconceptions. Like there's so many people who say, oh, why didn't they do this? Or why didn't they do that? Or these people were so stupid. These people were murdered. They were forced to do a mass suicide. And I will give you all the information to see the entire manipulation process from their leader, from his childhood, to the day he died. So get comfortable, because sweet dreams are made of these. The following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of abuse, mass murder, and mass suicide. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The rain clouds started to roll into Jonestown as a dozen community members began asking Congressman Leo Ryan to take them with him back home to America and escape People's Temple. It was then an older man with dark black hair and tinted aviator-style sunglasses stepped forward. The father gave the defectors permission to leave, along with giving them back their passports and telling them that they were always welcome back to Jonestown. People screamed, don't take my children while others screamed, take me with you. The once seemingly positive atmosphere quickly erupted into strenuous chaos. The congressman expressed that he would only be able to take who could fit onto two small six passenger airplanes and would have to come back for the rest. Once they arrived at the airstrip, the congressman, his staff, and the People's Temple defectors were boarding the airplanes. It was then Jonestown loyalists drove onto the tarmac and opened fire killing Congressman Leo Ryan and five others, viciously wounding several defectors before they drove away. Back at Jonestown, the father had informed the community that the congressman had been killed, just as he predicted, and that they would all soon be ambushed by the CIA military officers to be tortured and brutally murdered. 
Soon, more community members wanted to leave. This angered their father to the breaking point, who knew that this would be the final days of People's Temple and the execution of the final White Knight. The community of 918 people that he had spent his entire life building, manipulating, and eventually murdering would soon be recognized as the world's largest mass murder-suicide. This is the true crime cult story of Jim Jones and the People's Temple of Jonestown. Jim Warren Jones was born May 13, 1931, in Indiana to James and Lynetta Jones. His father, James, was a World War I veteran who suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and spent his days away from the home at the local pool hall drinking and isolating himself. During the war, James had survived a gas attack that had severely damaged his throat and lungs, making it very difficult for him to talk. Jim's mother, Lynetta, was a tough, difficult woman who exaggerated ideologies on the importance of her life. She believed that she was better than the life she was given and made a point to remind everyone just that. Except, Lynetta lacked all ambition to work hard for what she wanted. She blamed everyone for her downfalls, especially her husband. James and Lynetta were living on a small farm and life was difficult and unstable. James collected government disability checks and Lynetta worked long hours at a factory. And when she fell pregnant with Jim, she told everyone that she had a dream that her son was destined to be a great leader. She implanted in Jim Jones's mind since birth that he had to live up to being something great. At around four years old, Jim barely spent time with his parents and the lack of parental guidance let him do whatever he pleased. He taught himself how to walk without anyone around just by using a red wagon he had. This is where Jim developed his need for control. Jim Jones said, quote, I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile. Nobody gave me any love, any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with their child to school functions. There was some kind of performance and everybody's parent would be there but mine. I was standing there alone, always alone. Jim learned to do everything on his own. He felt as though he was an outcast and the kids at school thought he was strange because his hobbies included running around naked and bringing animals home to their farm where he would take care of them. When Jim was only five years old, he was able to befriend multiple stray dogs that would follow him around. These dogs would make it very difficult for his parents to attempt to discipline him because he had all of them trained to protect him. Starting from a young age, Jim Jones learned to surround himself with protection, and that is how you become a powerful leader. Being an introverted outcast, Jim grew up being an inquisitive onlooker. In early puberty, he began understanding the power dynamics of social structure. He began practicing his manipulation tactics with boys after school. He would see when others were feeling down and would use his charisma to build up the friendship but this was just practice to Jim Jones. His need for acceptance and love were so highly valued that the feeling of being accepted outweighed the sincerity in his mind. In psychology, Jim Jones learned very early that being able to manipulate one's personality to match the energy of another increases the likelihood of controlling them. This is a technique you will see him use countless times as we go along. One day when Jim Jones was exploring the town, he met Myrtle Kennedy, 
a kind older preacher's wife who belonged to the church in Nazarene. Myrtle took Jim to church, and Jim immediately fell in love with the spiritual atmosphere of the community. Jim soon discovered his adoration for religion. At home, his mother Lynetta was a vocal atheist who would have long talks with her son about how the idea of God was rubbish, but the idea of prophecy and spiritualism was what she believed. Jim himself was drawn more towards the socialist views of Christianity, since he himself did not believe in God. The Pentecostal church that he attended was made up of the outcasts of the community. In the 1930s, racism was very common, so African Americans were not allowed into certain churches or areas of town. This church was mostly African American, and Jim, being Caucasian, loved how he felt when he was there and nobody cared about race. Everyone was treated the same, everyone loved together and loved the same ideas. This is exactly what Jim Jones wanted. He wanted to build a socialist community where everyone was welcome, no matter the color of your skin. Every Sunday at the church, he would see members get emotional during the sermons. The boisterous congregation would sing, chant, and even cry at the words of the preacher. This sparked his interest in the religious community. Not the act of practicing Christianity, but seeing how people reacted to the preacher on the stage. Soon, Jim was attending churches all over town and taking notes on how to lead a congregation. This shaped the destiny of Jim Jones all before the age of 10 years old. When Jim was not at church, he was studying the Bible and reciting it to the animals on his farm. He built a lectern that stood in front of a candlelit shrine that was inside the family's barn. Jim would give energetic sermons to the animals and even have funerals for dead ones. A strange habit that Jim developed was he started performing blood transfusions on animals, as well as doing experimental surgeries, attaching body parts from other animals to some on his farm. Although the odd child, Jim's ability to manipulate how he interacted with others allowed him to get friends back to his house. He would find dead animals in the community and hold funeral services for them. One man explained how that when he was younger, he had seen Jim Jones kill a cat with the sole purpose of holding a funeral for the kids at school. Jim began inviting other kids to the local casket factory where he would have them lay inside a coffin to truly experience death. This, however, did not entertain long. The kids his age found it bizarre and did not want to continue participating. That's when Jim began befriending the younger and more gullible children. He would have them come to his animal funerals and lock the door until he decided that the gathering was over and found manipulating them was easy, especially with fear. Although it didn't always work, he resorted to more drastic measures. One time, his friend, Don Foreman, wanted to leave one of his lengthy sermons. And when Jim yelled at him to stay, he proceeded to exit the house. Jim followed behind and pulled out a 22 revolver Pulling the trigger, the bullet hit the tree so close to his friend that the bark ricocheted and hit Don's face. While still in his youth, Jim Jones began a strange fixation with Adolf Hitler. He would watch Hitler's speeches and was fascinated with his charisma and his ability to manipulate a crowd. He would watch how he spoke, quietly, and then he would erupt with power. And Jim loved how the audience reacted. Jim would play Nazis at school, and he would have his younger friends be the Nazi soldiers. He would have them march and even perform speeches in front of them, and if any of them threatened to leave, Jim would hit them with a stick, 
and bully them into staying. It is important to note that Jim Jones didn't actually agree with Hitler's beliefs, he just admired how Adolf Hitler could control a crowd. This is where Jim Jones began using more physical violence and bullying to keep people around. He realized that this did not work on the older kids or the popular kids, it only worked on the outcasts because they had a chance to feel like they belonged. This is a manipulation tactic you will watch Jim Jones use constantly once he develops his church. At 16 years old, Jim fashioned himself a robe out of sheets and would preach in mixed race neighborhoods about socialist views and racial equality. He expressed his want of a community where everyone was welcome. Jim's father was a racist who once seen that Jim had brought an African-American friend home and told him that blacks were not allowed in his house. Jim never spoke to his father again after that incident. In 1947, Jim's father died of heart failure and he and his mother moved to Richmond, Indiana. Jim began working as an orderly at the Reed Memorial Hospital. He loved being able to take care of seniors and bring smiles to their faces. Jim eventually got his friend, Don Foreman, a job as an orderly with him, where he would torture his friend just to see his reactions, just as he did when they were children. He would send him into dark areas of the hospital to work and made him work with patients he was very uncomfortable working with. And no matter how much Don disagreed, he eventually obeyed Jim because Jim would bully and harass him more and more, reminding him that he was his only friend. It was at the hospital when Jim met nursing student Marceline Baldwin. She grew up in a heavy political Christian family and never had a boyfriend. Marceline immediately fell in love with Jim. Her family, however, didn't particularly like him. They thought he was arrogant and condescending. Jim immediately began implanting lies about himself to make himself seem bigger than he really was, just like his mother did. It's always the mothers. On June 12, 1949, 18-year-old Jim married 22-year-old Marceline at the Trinity United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. Marceline soon began to realize all the lies that Jim was telling, especially about being a devout Christian when he was actually an atheist. He told her how ridiculous the idea of believing in a sky god was, and that was enough to make Marceline want a divorce. But her mother warned against it because having a divorce was frowned upon. The mothers. <laughs> in 1952, Jim Jones became a student pastor at the Somerset Methodist Church. Although Jim was an atheist, he highly valued socialist views. He seen the platform that the Methodist Church used to bring people in. He noticed how African Americans were not accepted at the church and this absolutely enraged him. With God aside, he loved the idea of racial integration, economic equality, and free speech. Jim Jones dreamed of leading a socialist community, but knew that he needed to use religion to gain his followers. But first, he made it his mission to bring acceptance with anti-discrimination and anti-racism to the Christian community. Mixed races at religious gatherings were not welcome. One event occurred where Marceline's mother said that interracial marriages were disgraceful and Jim Jones grew very upset and did not speak with her until she apologized. In June 1958, Jim and Marceline adopted nine-year-old Agnes, who was of Native American descent. They wanted to start a family of mixed races, what they called their rainbow family. The Joneses would welcome Stephanie and Lou of Korean descent in 1958. Stephanie would sadly be killed in a car accident with five other People's Temple members in 1959. 
On June 1st, 1959, Jim and Marceline gave birth to their only natural-born child, Stephen Jones. In the summer of that year, the couple would adopt Jim Jones Jr., and he would be the first ever African-American child to be adopted by a Caucasian family in Indiana. One time, Marceline was pushing Jim Jones Jr. in a stroller when a Caucasian lady spit on the baby. This made Marceline plead with her husband to move away from such intense racism. Jim Jones stood his ground and said, no, we must bring peace here and not let the fear and hatred win. We will fight where there has to be change. Jim spent years trying to bring peace within the communities, but whenever a race of color entered a church, the Caucasian members would leave. Swastikas and racial slurs were spray painted on African-American homes, and Jim Jones helped the families remove the graffiti and preached on the street how this was not what society should be doing. He convinced all the families not to move away and wrote letters to white supremacist groups and sent their malicious responses to the media to shame them. The board of the church decided not to allow Jim back due to the complaints from the congregation who did not agree with his racial equality. Because Jim Jones was a friend of the minister and his charisma brought the popularity and people to the church, the board offered to open a church in the African-American part of town. Jim responded, quote, there will be no black church or white church. Wherever I have a church, all people will be welcome. Being a devout Christian, Marceline tried to help her husband find religious faith within himself. It was her who found the Methodist new reform that focused on prison reform, economic equality, collective bargaining, free speech, and racial equality. Everything Jim Jones wanted. He planned on creating his own radical socialist movement in the disguise of a religious community where he was the voice. He needed a way to stand out and bring believers in. So he used God as a Trojan horse. Ugh, this slimy motherfucker. Okay, Ugh, so the things Jim Jones does to stand out in his own quirky little cute little way are absolutely fucking bananas, and unfortunately they're very humorous. So Jim needed a place to give his sermons, and it required a larger building. So to raise money, he began going door to door selling imported spider monkeys. <laughs> oh no, honey. Ugh, but he had the, he had a personal monkey that he had trained to attack people who disagreed with him. <laughs> you big baby. But it's actually not that surprising when you go back and look at when he was a child. Like he was able to befriend a group of stray dogs that he had trained to pretty much attack people who disagreed with him. Full circle, full circle. So this is how he would get people to his church with the spider monkeys and he would go to their house pitch the spider monkeys and then charismatically be like hey want to come to my sunday worship and it worked it freaking worked but i probably would have went too i would have seen the monkey and i would have been like damn i'm in so although jim was an atheist he truly did believe in social equality and at this point jim jones had a large following of mixed races, but a majority of them were people of color. And he didn't particularly use the word communism because at the time it wasn't received well. And this is something that he is very good at. He can smoke and mirror every ideology to his advantage 
and it is how he was able to become so successful. He learned at a young age to focus on the outcasts to build a following. And yes, he did believe in social equality, but he manipulated the fact that people of color were treated differently and unfortunately at the time were not as educated as most of society and they were they were poor and he wanted to truly help these people but in his sick mind he ended up wanting to control them and it's such a sad concept that he did this but in the beginning he really wanted to help these people and the thing about Jim Jones is that his socialist views about racial equality are amazing. Jim and Marceline, they created a free soup kitchen where they would feed the homeless and they would invite everyone. No one was segregated. And I personally believe that Jim Jones, well, he was, he was a very intelligent man who grew an ego that just warped his mind. Ugh, the sick shit he does later on as we go on, you will just, somebody pulls his auxiliary cord and he goes bonkers. Let's continue. Jim Jones was not particularly swayed by Marceline's religious selling of the Methodist church. He went to a Sunday service and seen that the minister was driving an expensive Cadillac and the minister vocally preached about equality, yet people were starving. Jim hated the hypocrisy of religion. He wondered how, if a sky god existed, how did he let people live in poverty and inequality? This is when Jim began going to communist gatherings in the United States. He never told his community since his fame was as a religious preacher. In the summer of 1959, Jim Jones met with Reverend Father Devine. Born in 1876, Reverend Father Major Jealous Devine was a very successful African-American preacher and spiritual leader who founded the International Peace Mission Movement, which believed in a utopian socialist society with no racial barriers. Father Devine taught that he was God and that heaven was a state of consciousness. The International Peace Mission Movement at its prime had two to 10 million members. This is what Jim Jones aspired to becoming. Father Devine was married to Penaniah, who members referred to as Mother Divine. In his doctrine, he states that there is no sex and only pure chastity unless bestowed upon them by himself. When Penaniah was diagnosed with cancer, Father Divine told his followers that he would cure her. But when she died, Father Divine had his pick of any female member of his compound. Because mingling of the sexes was forbidden, when Father Divine remarried, he claimed that the soul of his wife, Penaniah, had jumped into the body of 21-year-old Edna Rose Richings, who was his personal secretary. By the jumping of bodies is how Father Divine claimed to have saved Penaniah, and he named Edna Sweet Angel Divine, and not a single follower questioned their leader. Jim had been very intrigued with Father Divine. He was in awe of his religious following and faith healings, although Jim stated that he didn't believe in any of it. He craved the adoration. Up until this point, Jim Jones had been living the socialist way, he wore what common folk wore and lived in the same housing as his followers until he met Father Divine. Jim seen that Father Divine successfully built a socialist community to a large number and lived in a large mansion and had many luxuries that his followers did not. And he did so peacefully. This ignited a turn for Jim Jones and his ego. 
Father Divine had numerous influences upon the practices of People's Temple. Jim Jones began recording his sermons and having the members of People's Temple calling him Father and Marceline Mother. Jim found himself drawn toward the energy of the Pentecostal convention. He took his wife there and he loved the revival energy. The leader called Jim on stage, introducing him as a rising star, and Jim Jones was at first nervous, but then ran onto stage and delivered an hour-long sermon, and the crowd absolutely worshipped him. He quoted Bible passages at random and brought people up on stage who fell at the touch of his hand, and then Jim knew he wanted to be a faith healer as well. After his success at the convention, a local reverend named Jim Russell Winberg let Jim preach regularly at the local revival church gathering. Jim was officially a rising star, and with his healings, he would cure members of illnesses, diseases, broken bones, and disabilities in front of everyone on stage. But it was all a facade. Jim Jones would wander the congregation before every sermon meeting and introduce himself, while eavesdropping on conversations about members discussing their ailments and loved ones in their families. He would pick up key points, and when Jim was ready, he would take the stage and begin his mind-reading faith healings. Sister Ingram, you're concerned about the losing, losing of your sight. You're not able to see me clearly. Things just blur to you. You have to stumble around lately through crowds and are not able to see even people's faces close up to you clearly. That's true. You've told me nothing about your condition. No, I haven't. Give that little sweetheart a little bit of love. Thank you, baby. Now, take your glasses off. Just just dare in our faith. We've seen Sister Brown here who was blind, totally healed. Saw one of our sisters blind from her childhood. It could be hysterical blindness, whatever. We're not concerned. She was blind and could not see. Now, look at my face. I'm going to hold up some fingers. You concentrate hard. I love you. The people love you. And most importantly, Christ loves you. What do you see? How many fingers? Three. You don't even need your glasses, child. Jim Jones had loyalist members of his congregation who would spy on the guests just to get information. They would go to the congregate's houses, go through their mail, their garbage, and follow them around, and even went to the lengths of calling their homes, pretending to be surveyors. He also had these people pretend to have illnesses such as cancer, which he would cure. At first, he would approach a member and touch them, using sleight of hand, 
pull out a physical cancer and revealing the bloody tumors in his hand. He would tell everyone that only he could touch it because the Lord has bestowed power to him and the cancer was highly contagious so nobody could stand too close. Eventually, this became very suspicious, so he had his loyalists start to help him. Jim would call the loyalist member from the audience and have them go to the bathroom where they would pass the cancer, and then Jim would come out revealing the cancer, which of course was not a tumor at all. It was rotten chicken gizzards that he had previously set out so they had a repulsive odor. The media didn't believe Jim's cancer healings, and they offered to test the supposed cancer But Jim Jones said, no, you cannot, because if you do so, the enemy might tamper with the results. The so-called powers of Jim Jones increased his fame. The building had reached maximum capacity and people would have to gather outside just to witness the power of Jim Jones. Edie, fingers, are your fingers numb? Can you lie there? Having enormous headaches in your... Yes. Reach your hands out. Reach your hand out to me. Yes. Reach the fingers out that are bothering you. Now, is the pain gone? You're probably wondering, how could people believe that crap? So at this time when the world was openly very racist and most mixed families and people of color lived in poverty, the healthcare system was just as racist. So for these people who were born believing that they were not to be treated the same way, needed to feel a way to connect for a greater purpose. They needed to find significance and they found that in religion. And faith healings for them provided what they believed to be free healthcare really. So this is where the placebo effect kicks in. The placebo effect is the human brain's psychological response to falsely treat illnesses, headaches, and physical pain. It's expected to occur from a person's expectations, high beliefs, and conditioning. I found a study called The Power of the Placebo Effect done by the Harvard Medical School, and it's proven that the power of positive thinking can accelerate the body's healing process. In some cases, it does not work. Like obviously a person would need external treatment. So sorry, Jimmy Jones, but your hands won't shrink a tumor and they won't lower someone's cholesterol. That is all. Not everyone believed Jim Jones was as mystical as he claimed. Some members would call him out saying that he was a fraud and doubted his power. These people mysteriously dropped dead during his sermons. Little did they know that Jim had drugged them prior and the timing would have them collapse during his speeches. Jim would then express to everyone that this is what happens when you do not believe in him. And when people would begin to regain consciousness, Jim acted as if he decided it was the right thing to do and bring them back to life. This fear quickly spread and made people no longer doubt him, only building Jim's ego. famous healing of Jim Jones was that of an older woman who was secretly drugged after a sermon. When she woke up, her leg was wrapped in a cast and Jim's loyalists informed her that she had fallen and broken her leg. The next revival gathering, Jim approached her and placed his hand on her leg and told her that she was healed. They removed the cast and the leg was perfectly fine. Little did everyone know, 
her leg was never truly broken. At another healing, Jim called upon an older woman in a wheelchair. He praised her and told her that she could walk again. The old lady slowly rose to her feet and began to walk. As the crowd cheered, she began to run. The doctor has relieved you from your work in the second row. You have a bad spinal condition. Yeah. And your hip is injured. Yeah. Step from your wheelchair. Begin to step from your wheelchair. Try it. Just try it. Just try it. We have nothing to lose. We have no face to lose because we've said we're no panacea. But I have seen more healings here than I've ever seen any place. I love you. Jesus Christ loves you. Jehovah Jireh. All the goodness of all the world's great religions in the name and the mercy and the goodness of Jesus wherein I stand. Come forth, my dear. Stand up. Take that step. Bless your heart. Take that step. start seeing the dramatics come out of Jim Jones. He is a whiny little child (laughs) and it's because his parents ignored him and he raised himself and got away with everything. So he doesn't feel like he needs to be controlled by someone else. He just wants to control everyone else. And when he doesn't get that, he's a big baby. So when he was a child, he understood the concept of manipulation because that's how he got younger children who didn't particularly like him to play with him. Psychiatrist Robert J. Lipton coined a term called the milieu control, which details the tactics that control environment and human communication through the use of social pressure and group language. So examples would be dogma, protocols, innuendos, slang, and propaganda, which enables group members to identify other members or to promote cognitive changes in individuals. So in simple terms, it's brainwashing. And he knew that if he could get people to believe in a cause and to follow him to a location where he could have total control over them, he'd win. So here's some foreshadowing for you. But as a kid, he locked people in his barn, remember? And he would give sermons for hours. And soon he will be doing the same thing and he will bring his church of 900 plus people to a remote jungle location, and it gets so much worse. Now you'll see this tactic blatantly put into play as Jones becomes a drama queen over the next few years. So for example, if someone disagreed with him, he would grab his chest and practically have a heart attack. He would reach for that Oscar winning performance 
And when everybody was rushing to his side, he was okay. I watched a documentary with his son, Steven, who said that these acts got so redundant that people just didn't want to deal with it. So they either stopped going against him or just let it happen. But they wouldn't leave people's temple because they believed in the socialist cause. And when people aren't giving him the attention he wants, he creates it. So let's continue. Jim called his church the People's Temple, and because Jim had a positive experience with seniors, he used his charm to initiate mostly African-American seniors into his congregation, and they gladly gave up their possessions to the People's Temple, as well as their money. He told his followers that if they donated their money and assets and sign over the leases to their homes to the People's Temple, that it would go to the greater good of the socialist equality. Many members were hesitant to do so, and lots would actually leave the church. The loyal followers that were left were what Marceline considered to be quality. Marceline did not believe in her husband, but she believed in the cause. Jim, however, cared about the number of members of his church, not the quality, like his wife did. He needed money to build the socialist society he had always dreamed of. Jim took the abandonment of his followers as the worst betrayal. He knew that he had to progress his impact to continue his empire. He had to find a way to make abandoning his church difficult. The People's Temple was doing so much good for the community that Jim decided it was time to create some negative press to build his own ego and make himself seem godlike in the eyes of his followers. As he learned from Father Divine, every great leader has their enemies. What Jim decided to do at one point was to fire a gun off from his front porch and run back inside. The next day at church, he told the congregation that there was an assassination attempt on his life and God was protecting him. He told his followers that the police did not do anything because he supports the African-American community and they wanted to destroy what they built. What actually happened was Jim called the police and when they arrived and examined the scene, it was very obvious that the person who shot the gun was Jim Jones himself. Numbers in his church began to dwindle, so Jim secured an affiliation with the Protestant Christian denomination Disciples of Christ. This movement increased the numbers of his followers, solidifying Jim's official mark in the Christian movement. In October 1961, Jim Jones had a vision that the nuclear holocaust would occur in Indianapolis and Chicago. This time period, the threat of nuclear war was everywhere. Nuclear propaganda was commonly used by the church to bring people back into worship, and this worked for Jim. He told his followers that he knew the safe locations to hide from reading an article published in Esquire magazine titled, Nine Places in the World to Hide from Nuclear Fallout. The location that appealed to Jim Jones the most was Belo Horizonte in Brazil. In 1963, Jim packed up his family and moved to Brazil, leaving the People's Temple Associates to take care of the church in Indianapolis. The culture shock was strenuous for the family. They did not speak Portuguese, making work difficult to find. He felt like a failure because he could not bring people to his congregation or compete with the other missionaries. With Jim Jones being gone, the People's Temple Church was losing members. Archie Yemes told Jim that member Russell Winberg was turning members against him, telling the followers about the communist views of their leader. Jim immediately felt guilty for abandoning the social rights movement in Indiana and decided it was time for him to move back and fix his church. When Jones came back, Russell Winberg walked out with a hundred communist-fearing People's Temple members. Jim had a radio show back in the United States that preached positivity and faith. 
He had a person step in while he was gone in Brazil, but once he was back and seen everyone was abandoning him, he became more aggressive with his approach to socialism, and he was saying that he was now a prophet and God himself, which resulted in his show getting cancelled. The Human Rights Commission continued on Jim's work of desegregating the community without him. The idea of him being replaceable and people taking credit for his hard work enraged him. When he seen other ministers leading his once followers, it drove him to promise that no one again would ever steal his followers or lead his people. All of a sudden, threats began happening to People's Temple. Threatening phone calls, racist graffiti, Molotov cocktails, dead animals were found on the steps, dynamite was found at the church, and many believed that these threats were all orchestrated by Jim. Some were even proven to be. Once when Jim was at a friend's house, a rock was thrown through the window, shattering it. Later, when the police arrived, they stated that the shattered glass was located outside of the house, which indicated that the rock was thrown from inside, which led many people to believe that Jim orchestrated many of the threats against his people's temple and himself. In February 1964, Jim Jones officially became a certified ordained minister by the Disciples of Christ, earning his bachelor's degree and solidifying his legitimacy to his religious followers, maintaining that he was a prophet and a devout socialist. The paranoia of Jim Jones losing everything he made made him decide it was time to relocate People's Temple. In 1965, he told his followers that the nuclear bomb would be dropped on July 15, 1967, creating a new socialist Eden for those who were safe with him. But they had to move to Ukiah, California, Jim told his followers that they had many reasons to go, one, mainly because they owed him their happiness due to Indiana and all the hard work that he did for them. Once he was gone, they would either die in the nuclear blast or be segregated during the Cold War threat. However, he lied and said that he had a secret cave in California where everyone would be safe. This increased the amount of followers who left, selling their homes and giving all the money to the People's Temple. Non-People's Temple members and family members called the followers crazy, expressing how Doomsday Prophecy was merely a manipulation tactic to move everyone. To respond to this, Jim sent his followers to a psychiatrist who deemed them completely normal. 140 members of People's Temple relocated to a remote 60-acre rural property in Redwood Valley and declared their organization officially a non-profit organization. Together, they built a church for Sunday services, and the members lived in communal compounds and had to work for the People's Temple facilities. The population of Eureka, California was a majority of Caucasian people, and when the People's Temple members moved to Redwood, California, Jim decided it was a good idea to integrate the rich Caucasians who wanted to help for the socialist cause. The temple gained many young adults who ranged from drug addicts, homeless, and Jim targeted those who he could easily manipulate by giving them food, shelter, and an equal community while swearing their unwavering loyalty to him. Donations were made during his sermons, and he would use the money to build shelters for the homeless, soup kitchens, senior care centers, and mental health care centers. Followers were asked to sign life care contracts, which allowed the People's Temple to keep their social security checks in exchange for living in the Socialist Temple Society. The state of California paid roughly $300 per resident every month, Eventually, the donation pool got so big that Jim began embezzling the money and keeping it in secret accounts. He told his followers that for the church to grow, he would need more money. The community of People's Temple were a very happy and cheerful society, 
They believed in the cause and believed in Jim Jones. Because nobody was seeing his lies in the full view at this point, People's Temple was a very thriving community. Jim Jones still needed to maintain the idea that he was the reincarnation of Christ. He constantly preached visions of terrible accidents occurring if his congregation didn't believe in him. He did this by telling people that if they did not do what his vision said, they would die. A mysterious accident occurred to a known troublemaker and avid doubter of the temple, a man named Whitey Firestone. He was driving with his family and accidentally drove his car off a cliff, killing only Whitey's son. Jim Jones got the call and rushed to the aid by climbing down the ravine. He told his followers that he used his powers to save what was left of the family. This instilled fear into the followers by insinuating that if you did not fully believe in him, then your family isn't safe. Another event that occurred was when loyalist Joyce Sweeney died in a car accident, and she was a firm believer in Jim, so he had to cover his claims. He told his followers that he and Joyce had previously had a conversation and that he had warned her to meditate for a couple minutes before leaving. He said that she just ignored him and walked away. He told his followers that this is the reason why she died, and that any little thing he asked you to do, you had to do it or you would die. These small threats only increased the fear control on his community. He had the ability to charm any idea into any doubter's mind by constantly improvising solutions to his contradictions. He was an atheist, and he preached to his religious followers that he was God. But to his atheist socialist followers, he told them that God was a metaphor for socialism, and only he could lead it. Jim Jones has this knack for constantly contradicting himself. Whenever Jim had someone call him out, he would put them on the planning commissions for People's Temple to make them feel important. And it was just a way to keep them in line by making them feel special. So Jim used the planning commission to personally control troublemakers and possible defectors and women he wanted to have sex with but not let the public know about it. In a nutshell, the purpose of the planning commission was to make it seem that certain people were special, which would make them not talk and more obligated to keep secrets to please Jim Jones. And former members say that a high percentage of these meetings all were so just Jim Jones could talk about who he wanted to have sex with and how great he was at having sex. He would have people stand up and read their letters about how amazing sex was with Jim Jones in front of their little planning commissions party. <laughs> oh my God, this freaking guy. So another reason why he had the planning commission was to discipline his congregation. And you'll see more of this come into play as we go on. And it's, these people get nasty and it's all just to please Jim Jones. And because he is a paranoid narcissist, he would constantly test his followers just to see how much they believed in him and how far they would go. And these started off small and quite ridiculous too. For example, he had members drink glasses of warm water and vinegar in the mornings just to see if they would do it. And if they didn't, he would call them out as non-believers and then he would have the congregation degrade them for not believing in front of the entire congregation on Sundays. All of these little tests were basically Jim slowly indoctrinating them into progressing his tests later. And the reason his followers did it was because they wanted to please Jim Jones 
or something bad would happen to them. And sure as shit, Jim Jones would orchestrate something that would cause something unbelievably terrible to happen because of their so-called non-believers. And the first ever poison test was actually in 1969. And Jim told a small group inside his planning commission, cheers, let's have a cup of lime Kool-Aid. It was actually Kool-Aid at this time. It wasn't Flavor-Aid. And they, they did it. They drank it and then he told them it was poison just to see each person's reaction. And he'd search for who was freaking out and who was accepting the death so he knew who to take mental notes on and who to really focus his manipulation and trust with. And then after a while, he told them it was a joke. Ha <laughs> that was fun. So this poisoning test would be one of many, which is how he trained his followers one step at a time. And lots of you are probably thinking, yeah, I'd be gone. So you have to remember that it's not that simple. All of these followers have signed over their social security checks, their assets, they sold their houses, gave everything to Jones, and he owned these people. And also the people in the community were great people and they were really nice and loved each other. So yeah, Jim was a little bit of a bat case, but the cause was important to these people because if they, they knew that if they left, they would have nothing because they were either poor and had nothing before, or they gave absolutely everything and rejected their own families to join the people's temple. He also had very specific ways that he would bound his followers to the people's temple so they couldn't leave even if they wanted to. So he had this strategy where every child over the age of 11 would sign the bottom piece of a blank paper. And so if the family decided to deflect and leave, the people's temple would write an incriminating letter or a suicide note or even a confession and it would be written on the paper and sent to the authorities. He even put one girl's fingerprints all over a gun in case she left. So they would kill a random member. Well, they never did, but they insinuated that they would kill a member of People's Temple and then frame the person for it. That's the extent that he was going to keep people. He had abandonment issues so bad. He eventually ends up having the planning committee forcefully hand pieces of paper out to people and have them write down false confessions such as rape, pedophilia, murder, tax fraud, and then sign the bottoms. And then they were to be given to Jim Jones. And if you didn't do it, then he would have the entire congregation belittle you and bully you. And they would even beat you. And I will play the clips a bit so you can hear just how bad it was. And he trained his congregation to want to please him so much that as long as they weren't getting beaten, they were in God's good grace. So you will see this really manipulate his crowd. He had this sadistic reward system where he told his entire congregation that if anyone spoke negatively about the church or him or the cause of socialism, that it was to be immediately reported to him and then they were rewarded. And of course, everybody wanted to please their God, so it became a giant narc society. But because everyone was doing it, it was normal. And Jim Jones created a division within these families, so they didn't get to talk to each other or see each other as much. So for example, 
if a family moved in, the mother and the father would be living in separate compounds and the kids would be living in different housings as well. Keep in mind throughout this story is that these protocols, they didn't just come into place overnight. Jim Jones strategically slowly indoctrinated these people over 25 years into this way of life. And that's how he was able to control them because he slowly did this. Whereas a lot of cults are just like, boom, boom, boom. No, he went slow because he was very intelligent with how he did it. In the summer of 1967, a successful district attorney named Timothy Stone and his wife Grace joined People's Temple. Jim used social manipulation and charmed the lawyer and allowed him into a ritzy apartment away from the temple community to have luxuries. This created a separation between them and the common members who had to live in a cloaked communist society. Because of this, the only people Timothy and Grace could trust was Jim Jones. Timothy will become a very important member of People's Temple and a very useful tool for Jim Jones. In mid-April in 1968, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., a memorial service was held in San Francisco to the public. Jim took the opportunity to bring a majority of his congregation to the service and began selling everyone on the community that he had built in California. This boosted the numbers substantially of People's Temple. The methods of how Jim Jones would gain specific followers he truly wanted ranged from simple to technical manipulation. One example of this would be a young woman who ran away from an abusive family. She stayed with a couple of People's Temple who tried convincing her to stay. She said that she wasn't sure if she was going to go back to her family or not. She wrote letters to her family but was not receiving any back. The woman assumed her family abandoned her and Jim Jones was right there to console her. He began telling her personal information that she had not told anyone, and Jim said it was his mind-reading powers. When it was in fact the couple that she was staying with was relaying all the information from the letters to Jim Jones. By 1969, People's Temple had 300 members, and 3,000 by 1973. Jim would travel around, preaching to African-American communities, explaining what good his socialist politics have done for people of color in the past. Jim had a specialization for manipulating minorities to gain followers. 80% of People's Temple members were of African-American descent. What Jim demanded of his followers for providing them the ability to desegregate was the undivided loyalty to him and to socialism of People's Temple. If anyone was caught being materialistic or selfish by getting a luxury, such as buying a new t-shirt, going out on the town, or even sleeping in, was to be directly reported to Jim Jones to be punished. Many members before joining the People's Temple lived in poverty and were now very thankful for Jim providing them with shelter, employment, and food. A smaller number of temple residents were young and came from wealthy, well-educated backgrounds, like his wife, Marceline, believed in the cause of socialism, not in fact, Jim Jones. At this point, Jim changed his church sermons preaching about how Russia was now the safe haven if need be, and was no longer an enemy, claiming that Russia was now a socialist country. One member from a well-educated family spoke up in front of the congregation, calling Jim Jones a liar. This resulted in Jim yelling at the man for questioning him. Afterwards, he took the man aside and told him he says things like that to comfort his uneducated members. 
He went on to tell the man that he needs an intelligent man like him on his side to be on the inside with him because these people need leaders. So always come to me with questions. Don't question me in public and I will lead you. In the 1970s, Jim had a group of devout loyalists, one being a middle-aged woman named Patty Carmel. She was in love with Jim Jones and would do anything for him without question. She had been a follower since the beginning. When Jim would travel to other cities and states to perform faith healings, Patty and other loyalists would come along and pretend. They would pretend that they were just members of the audience and they would dress in elderly clothing and sometimes would wear blackface makeup to blend in with the African-American community. This tricked the audience into thinking someone who looked like them was being healed, and this lured him many new followers to People's Temple. Jim Jones created a leadership council, which he named the Planning Commission. The group started off with an elite group of People's Temple members, mostly young, white, attractive women. And as time went on, Jim used social manipulation to add more members to the Planning Commission, and then dividing them into smaller groups, creating a hierarchy of importance that had a reward system. This was an egotistical move on Jim's part. He knew that by creating a divide, members would go against each other just to impress him. In 1972, the People's Temple's Sunday mass donations were surpassing $30,000 per week. This provided enough funds for the temple to purchase 11 tour buses, where he chose a selected group of followers to go on a tour across the United States. On this tour, the temple sold pieces of secondhand clothing, claiming it was a piece of Jim Jones's preacher's robe. They also sold small photos of Jim Jones for $5 each, stating that they brought protection to anyone who had one, making roughly $3,000 a revival service. During revival convention stops, Jim would have loyalist members plant themselves in the audience and pretend to die. Then Jim would walk over to them and bring them back to life, claiming that he had complete control over death. While on this tour across the United States, Back in Ukiah, the suspicion of what life was like in People's Temple became scandalous. The children of People's Temple were permitted to attend public school, and one day a teacher overheard a group of Temple children comparing their bruises, which they claimed were from playing at home. The teacher spoke to one child off to the side and was told that the bruises came from a dangerous extensive hike that Temple leaders forced them to go on. Jim Jones had several rules for his followers, one being no sex, and he did not agree with homosexual relationships, which he adopted from Father Divine. He believed it distracted people from the goal for what they had in the church. Sex was only permitted if granted by Jim, and most couples were split up and then Jim chose new partners for them. On December 13, 1973, Jim Jones was arrested for soliciting sex from a male police officer in the Westlake Theater. He denied these claims and told his followers that he was only allowed to participate in gay sexual relations with men to reach spiritual awakening, and that everyone was gay except for himself, and he was the only true heterosexual on the planet. The charges were eventually dropped due to the pressure from People's Temple members defending their leader. It was after this event that Jim Jones was more open about his affairs with his small inner circle of the Planning Commission. Jim's lust for sex was a secret until he approached a temple member to give them their spiritual awakening, and this helped the church's cause, or so he claimed. Jim told them that it was a sacrifice for him, and he did not want to have to engage in sex, but he had to. 
Marceline had a hunch that Jim had been having affairs because she had been suffering extensive back pain, which prevented them from having sex at all. Jim told her that she could not satisfy him sexually, and openly told Marceline and their children that a woman by the name of Carolyn Layton would be replacing their mother as his sexual lover. Carolyn Layton joined People's Temple in the late 1960s with her husband, Larry Layton. After some time of living in People's Temple, Carolyn was approached by Patty Cartmel, who was one of Jim's most loyal followers and part of his inner circle. Patty told Carolyn that Jim had chosen her to be his sexual partner so he can release his powers sexually, and Marceline was unfit to continue her sexual duties as his wife. As compensation, Jim gave Larry Layton another woman from the community, but he still insinuated that sex was forbidden. Jim's most loyal follower was a woman named Patty Cartmel, who was madly in love with him. She tried multiple times to have sexual relationships with her leader, but he did not want it. Jim told her that she was too overweight to sleep with him. So what Jim decided to do was to put Patty in charge of his secret weekly fuck schedule. Patty would schedule the days he would engage in sex with multiple chosen female and male followers. Jim did not believe in using condoms and many women became pregnant in People's Temple. Jim forced them to get abortions. The People's Temple attorney, Tim Stone, spent most of his days by Jim's side, leaving his wife Grace alone. Eventually, she became lonely and started confiding in other People's Temple members, and he took it upon himself to save her. Not soon after, Grace Stone became pregnant by Jim Jones. Grace gave birth to John Stone, a baby boy. Outside the temple, the baby's natural father was Tim Stone, but in People's Temple, the baby's real father was Jim Jones. In a power assertion move, Jim had Tim publicly write a letter stating that he gave Jim Jones the support to sire a child with his wife because he himself could not after many attempts to have children, which was a lie. And Jim Jones was going to use this child as leverage if Tim or his wife ever threatened to leave the People's Temple. He had his wife, Marceline, sign the letter as a witness. After being humiliated by her husband, after having affairs with multiple women, she decided that she wanted a divorce and she was taking her five children with her. Jim Jones immediately threatened to kill her. For the sake of her children, she surrendered to her fate and stayed with her husband. Since Jim took it upon himself to make every final decision and oversee everything, this involved him having to constantly be awake. His sermons were now mandatory attendance from everyone, and the People's Temple Church's doors were locked, and it wasn't over until Jim Jones said it was. These meetings lasted for hours, and they were not provided chairs. They had to sit on the floor or stand. A former member recalled seeing people pass out and even urinate themselves. Jim had a couch that he would lay on and would at times get up and preach behind his lectern. His lectern was just a mask for the bucket that he had hidden behind it that he would secretly urinate into. Here's an audio clip of Jim yelling at a man for trying to go to the bathroom during one of his meetings. Get a container for me, no more pissing in the ground. Now I hope it doesn't have a bad effect on your leader. You people all tighten me up. God damn you sons of bitches, God damn you. I sure as hell would glad to walk to the fucking toilet, but I don't have the time to walk to the goddamn toilet. Son of a bitch. Pour liquid in to keep my, my urinary system to function. So it's nothing but liquid. But you all got to take... So, okay, okay. 
Now I got to piss in a pot. There won't be no pot. So I'll stay in there the goddamn bladder burst. There won't be no pot. No, there won't be. Because you sons of bitches, anything I do, you got to do. God damn you. Why don't you work like I do then? Why don't you take the burdens I do then? Son of a bitch, I ever saw anything like this. I hate these goddamn meetings. Jim performed two preacher sermons a day that lasted for hours, and he had to appear more than a simple man. So to do so, he started taking amphetamines to keep him awake and energized. He would be so high on uppers that he had to rely on quaaludes when he decided to sleep. It was the constant use of drugs that only increased his paranoia, and he would incorporate rants about the enemy during his church meetings. He officially denounced God and claimed that he was the only God. His eyes began getting so red that he started wearing his signature dark-tinted aviator sunglasses at all times. He told anyone who asked that he had immense such a godlike power that if he were to take them off and look at anyone, they would be burned by his holiness. Weekly meetings were held and Jim changed his idea of God once again. He was now preaching to everyone that only the people in people's temple were demigods and that he was the true God. To convince his devout religious followers that he was the true God, he would point out Bible passages that contradicted themselves and then he would claim that the sky God was the world's greatest lie. He would then throw the Bible across the room and run over and jump on it and shouted, was I shut down by a bolt of lightning? No, because I am God. All the followers of Jim Jones fell to their knees in adoration. With this new surge of an ego boost, Jim decided to return to Philadelphia and attempt to convert Father Divine's church and members to the People's Temple, tripling his numbers. Father Divine had passed away years prior, leaving the church to Sweet Angel Divine. Jim attempted to use the same technique that Father Divine used on his followers, saying that he was a reincarnation of Father Divine. Sweet Angel Divine didn't believe a word of it. She told him to leave immediately. Upon failing miserably at his attempt to convert Sweet Angel Divine and her congregation, Jim Jones told his members of People's Temple that Sweet Angel Divine had tried to seduce him by flashing her breasts in which he rejected her and did not want her congregation. The planning commission was now made up of those Jim Jones wanted to maintain the most control over, and he put them in charge of his discipline protocols. Here's an audio clip of a temple member being disciplined by a member of the PC committee. You stay on the crew, I don't care how long you stay on the crew, because I talked to your ass and you still did the same shit with Jared, talking negative and shit. Then maybe you ought to work on your shit, because you, 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 God, you're, you're bad as these guys half the time. You ask him why he's hostile, he tells you, then you come and talk to me because he told you why he was hostile. You just, God damn, you're like a fucking kid. You're the same manipulating son of a bitch I, I knew in the first fucking place, and you just you just cut it out and you stay on a goddamn crew too. That, it's, it's ended, excuse me. You sit down, thank you, salute me, I'll break your neck. Whenever a member was caught doing something selfish or even speaking negatively, they got turned into the PC committee and got isolated discipline counseling. And if that member's unaccepted behavior continued, the public discipline started. This commonly included Jim Jones calling out a member, standing them up in front of the entire congregation, and spent hours verbally abusing them and soon physically beating them with either a belt or a paddle. Warning, here's audio of Jim Jones and members of People's Temple beating fellow members for discipline. You should try 
to father follow father's example he said i couldn't do that in a thousand lifetimes look willie i remember well what you said about father a few months ago father bleeds father bleeds father bleeds and i remember what you said yesterday morning you said father you're hostile against father and against me don't look look all your words of manipulation don't convince me one bit you're a goddamn liar and also and also this morning when mother was talking to him it was nothing but just pure hostility on his face he had nothing but a glare in his eyes hold it hold it hold it no matter what age from seniors to children the number of hits ranged from 10 to 100 and members sometimes required medical attention one time a child got beat so bad he couldn't sit down for a week. The followers wanted to be on Jim's good side, so members eventually were riding out other members daily, and the punishments sometimes had up to 50 members standing in line during a service waiting to be beat. The abuse escalated to physical boxing matches in the Sunday sermons, where a member would be put up against a member they had no chances of beating. And if they did win, Jim would make them go up against another opponent and box the victim until they lost. This was putting grown men against children and even seniors, male or female. Occasionally, Jim would order the victim to box naked in front of the entire congregation, and the congregation of hundreds would be cheering. The more the members wanted to please Jim Jones, the more ridiculous the reasons for being punished became. Here's audio of a female being punished for talking too much. I get. I must be losing track of it. I thought I was doing better. I tried to hold my tongue, but it wasn't good enough. I don't see why you can't keep your hands down. I don't know you're saying anything. I come. You can't keep your mouth shut and do your work, huh? How come you can't keep your mouth shut and do your work and stay off of? Sometimes the so-called discipline humiliations had nothing to do with anything negative. An example would be in the case of a woman named Lori. She simply had a crush on Jim Jones. Jim's ego loved this. He brought her up in front of his congregation and told her to strip naked. He told her every reason he found her disgusting and would not sleep with her. The crowd cheered, calling her names and agreeing with everything that came out of Jim's mouth. He made her sit the entire rest of the sermon naked. After the humiliation, Jim would hug and console the people he was yelling at, telling them it was for their own good. The relationship that Jim Jones had with his members is exactly like an abusive relationship. The cycle starts with Jim intimidating and threatening which then escalated to physical violence. Then after, he would withdraw into the honeymoon phase and comfort them and gaslight them, and the cycle would just continue. Why? Because I know I lose, I try to be too bossy and saying anything at all. I just lose, I just um, am bossy. Boy, you like, you like your beat on. We don't like to see it. You know, the goddamn middle of the night, midnight. He trained his congregation with the mindset that as long as they were not the ones in trouble, the spotlight was not on them. 
so Jim trained them to be like his guard dogs. They would turn on each other instantly just to be loyal. It was a cruel form of entertainment, and it kept people's minds off of the sketchy things that Jim Jones was doing. This is one of the many reasons why people stayed at People's Temple. The members were true to the socialist ideology, and in the beginning, everyone was happy. Once Jim started to become abusive, the only hope that he would go back to his once loving self. But the abuse and the manipulation was just getting started. Join me next week for part two and the final conclusion of Jim Jones and the murder-suicide of the 900 members of People's Temple. Sweet dreams. Lights out.